Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and joining me today are Personal Finance Editor Leonora Walters, Personal Finance Writer Emma Adjaman, and on the phone we've got Adrian Lowcock, Head of Investing at AXA Wealth. So for investors, one of the biggest issues thrown up by Brexit so far has been the impact on commercial property funds. They've been forced to gate investors in the funds, write down the value of their assets, and some have imposed dilution levies in order to protect investors from those wanting to exit. So it's really brought to light the issue inherent to these open-ended funds which invest in illiquid assets. And that's left people wondering, and some of our readers asking, whether bond funds could face the same kind of problems. So we've been hearing a lot about the increasingly illiquid nature of bonds for a few years now, particularly corporate bonds. So we're asking, could bond funds be the next property funds? Adrian, let's talk first about these issues that we've seen in property funds and why they've suffered. What is it about property which makes it problematic? It's basically the, the size of, of, of property. So you've got a large asset. You don't just buy a couple of shares for a couple of pounds. You buy a property for five, ten, twenty million pounds or more. Um, and that therefore means it's can be quite illiquid, illiquid in times of stress because if one person wants to sell a part of the property and the fund doesn't have enough money in, in cash deposits to meet that one seller, then they have to consider selling the whole property to meet one, one disposal, which could only be you know, £10,000 or something, and, and the property size is much bigger than that. So, so the fundamental issue is that property isn't a, a, it's a physical object. You can't divide it into small fractions, and therefore it's not as liquid. And you add in... You know, selling a property isn't as easy as it is to sell a share. They're not traded on stock exchanges or in markets, so you can't. You don't have that liquidity there just to sort of go to someone and say, "Actually, I've got some shares in GlaxoSmithKline to sell. Um, do you want to buy them?" Yes. What's the price? You don't. You can't do that with property. You've got to go and find a buyer, and then there's costs involved as well. So yeah, and it takes it's long a time. Lot longer process of selling and buying. And so, I mean, we mentioned shares there, but how similar are bonds to property in, in that case? You can divide up bonds, can't you? Yeah, so, I mean, it's exactly. And, and, and bonds and shares are traded on the stock exchange, so, the, the, so there's similarities there. You can, get a, you, know, you can get a bond from Unilever and, and it may issue, you know, two, three hundred million pounds in that bond and you can go and trade them in, 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 in smaller units. Um, so, therefore, there, there is the, the, the visibility and the ability to sort of sell smaller fractions means there's more liquidity around the bonds in, in terms of how they're structured. And uh, and that basically means, and then there's a market, there's a secondary market where you can go and see if there's a buyers out there to sell. So there's there's more ease to find out whether there are interested buyers and sellers at the, uh, in the bond market. Um, and it's not so time consuming to go and sell them or buy them. But we do hear people talking about liquidity and the lack of liquidity, particularly in the corporate bond market. So so what is the problem? Are there fewer buyers of corporate bonds now? It's not as so much as there's fewer buyers, it's there's fewer sellers actually. So part of the issue with the liquidity of the corporate bonds is that they're out there, but the, the good the stuff the good stuff that people want to hold uh, is being held, um, and some of that's you know banks holding more more on their balance sheets to to, to meet uh, uh, capital adequacy requirements, um, and but also professional investors are holding the, the good bonds and saying no, I, w- I wouldn't wouldn't want to sell these for love nor money at the moment, <laughs> and uh, right. and therefore the liquidity is sort of almost self created. It's 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 the demand that's created the lack of liquidity in the bond market. The issue is, as people get increasingly defensive, they've gone into bonds and bonds yields have fallen, and, and particularly in government bonds where they've gone negative across large parts of the world. The, the, the big issue is, is, you know, if you want to get out and sell, um, if everyone's trying to sell at the same time, 
um, you end up with, uh, with you, know, you end up with an issue that there may be no buyers, and that, that's what's sort of creating that concern about liquidity. Is if everyone's holding the assets, what happens when everyone wants to sell the assets? Right, and, and is it that issue exactly that makes people worried about bond funds? What, what if we all want to get out at the same time? That, that that is the issue that would would would, would sort of give it give, give lead to that the, the comparison to the property market. What would happen if everybody wanted to get out at the same time? And 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 effectively, you know, if everyone's trying to sell at the same time, then you, you know, who are your buyers? And if you don't have any buyers, then the price of the bonds falls until until somebody says, actually, at that price, I'm going to buy it. Um, the issue is really around um, why that might be created. Why why would everyone want to sell bonds? And the only reason you'd sort of sort of look at it is there's, there's two factors. I has the risk of the investment gone up significantly since you bought it and changed. Um, so if you're buying a company and a bond in a company, has the outlook for that company changed materially and quite significantly to create a big sell-off? Um, and that that's happen- that happens all the time anyway. Companies' outlooks change all the time. But more more likely, it would be a change in outlook for interest rates, and it would be quite a severe change in outlook at interest rates. It wouldn't just be sort of expecting the U.S. to maybe raise rates a couple of uh, 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 basis points, uh, or so, you know, quarter percent here, or a quarter percent there. It would be interest rates rising rapidly in a very short space of time. So perhaps in the U.K., instead of going down, we'd be going up to three or four percent in the space of, you know, maybe 12 months or something, and that would cause a shock to the system and cause everyone to sort of rush for the door. Yeah, OK, so so those are the things that we might need to worry about. But, I mean, just coming back to if you're, if you're trying to think through the comparison to a property fund, if, you know, if a bond fund manager does need to, to sell assets in order to meet redemptions, is that a better situation being in a bond fund than a property fund? Are bond funds kind of more diversified? They are because at the end of the day, you don't need to put sort of 15, 20 million pounds into one bond fund like you do with one property. So a bond manager will, will also manage the duration, which is basically the time to maturity of the bonds uh, that they hold. And they will have an average duration for the portfolio, which they're targeting or they think is a good good place to be. But within that, they may hold bonds that mature in, you know, in, a, in a week's time or in two months' time, and they'll hold bonds, bonds that may not mature for 10 years. So, you know, push comes to shove, they can actually hold on until they get their cash from the, uh, the underlying borrower and, and, and wait for that cash to come through. At, you know, they can also sell, they've got different quality of, of, of bonds. So some bonds will be very attractive, um, whilst others they might not be able to get a sell a buyer for, but there's some of the better stuff they could do. And actually, that's what you could end up doing is being forced to sell the stuff you like not the stuff you want to get rid of first in a, in a situation crisis. And exactly what we saw with bond managers in 2008. You know, they, they wanted to sell the, the bank debt, but actually that nobody wanted to buy that. So they, they were forced, if, if you were forced to sell, you were forced to sell stuff that you wanted to keep. Mm. Um, and they've learned lessons from that. They've learned, you know, to man- the, the, the importance of liquidity um, and being able to sort of liquidate your portfolio quite quickly in, in, in times of crisis. And these things are always, you know, they're always sort of, calculations that they do and they never quite pan out in the real world when, when, when events happen but you know they've learned that lesson and now do factor that into their portfolio construction yeah I mean I guess that's the thing isn't it because uh, people will remember 2008 and think about um, these bond funds which were kind of full of nobody knew what they were full of at the end of the day and we'll think we'll think of that now but bond funds today look pretty different to those kind of junk bond funds that we had back then don't they 
Um, yeah, I mean, well, one do. of the most do. <laughs> one of the key issues back then was was you know the the concept that bank debt was wasn't good quality. You know, the, so this is this is the likes of Lloyd's or Barclays or HSBC in the UK. You know, they had what was called tier one bank debt, and this was effectively some of the highest quality corporate debt you could have, and they had also other tiers below that. And actually, in the financial crisis, suddenly this very good quality stuff ends up being sort of almost junk status in, in, in the eyes of investors. So, so your, your best quality investments or your highest creditworthy investments actually turned out to be um, the, the, the highest risk assets you had. And that's what threw, threw, threw a lot of investors out. What, what, I mean, what managers do, you know, it, it, they've learned is, is, is effectively not getting trapped in, in, in holding too much in one area. So they're perhaps better diversified now than they have been previously. But as such, also holding that debt. So, you know, the choice is not necessarily around that it once was either. So which bond fund or which bond areas then do you think are, are the most vulnerable to a correction or, you know, vulnerable to seeing capital loss in the kind of next few years? It's quite a broad, broad market, and and I think you know you've got sort of issues with currency at the moment. So you know areas that are always going to be subject to loss are going to be in the high yield market and and, and things like emerging market debt, which tends to be priced in dollars but can also be local currency, and they tend to be the most volatile. Um, they. You know, as as the chase of yield and the hunt for yield has been sort of going on for a number of years now, the the the, the income you get on these these debts has been falling, and we saw we saw the effect of of a change in outlook on the credit worth of these at the beginning of the year in the high yield market, in particularly in the U.S. and and in the energy sector where. Uh, um, the oil price collapse had a big impact on that sector, and uh, and effectively the the yields went really really high as the price um, fell, and um, that that sort of gives you a factor of risk. So high yield and emerging market debts are always going to be your riskier areas, and they're they're the lower quality areas of the but market. But also the higher income payers, right? They they are, and they are yeah. But it's and, and that's exactly why it's sort of important to flag them because it's really really important that you know you're getting a higher income for a reason because you're taking more risk. Um, other than that, it's you know it's going to be because I don't think we're going to see interest rate rises in the UK anytime soon, and certainly the US is going on a slower trajectory than it first anticipated on rate rises. Um, so you know we are in this lower for longer interest rate environment, and they could you know the UK is thinking of cutting them, not raising them at the moment. So I don't think there's going to be a rush to the door, and that's good for corporates in the sense that they. They, they're not going to be under any pressure to try and sort of uh, um, meet payments. If, if interest rates were rising, they may then struggle in that environment, and that's when you could actually see more defaults on it. So, so in this sort of benign environment, companies are going to sort of um, sort of carry on as, as they were, and, and should, we shouldn't see a rise in defaults. It's when when there's a shock to the system, if you know if, if oil price collapsed again to back to twenty odd dollars a barrel. Um, could we see more issues in the energy sector? So it could be sector specific that, that we could see, see see defaults on, and then it'll be company specific. You know where where uh, businesses have, have made mistakes or management teams have not been strong enough, and and, and they've got themselves in trouble, and then, and their profits just aren't there, and the the company uh, uh, folds itself, and therefore it's stock specific. And stock specific risk is quite um, small impact because uh, fund managers you know do run very diversified portfolios to reduce the impact of individual stocks. I guess for investors, if they're thinking, if they're at all worried about bond fund liquidity, how, what's the best way to choose one? 
the best way, uh, I think, for most people is actually looking at a strategic bond fund um, that you basically have a manager who can go anywhere from sort of government debt to all the way to the high yield space um, and anywhere in between. And then that, that effectively means gives gives them the authority to, to make the investment decision for you uh, instead of you actually um, perhaps you know, trying trying to time which part of that market you should be in. Should you be in high yield or or corporate or government debt? You've got a manager who will be able to switch in and out for you, and and be tactical about it. And that also means that they can sort of add risk within the portfolio, um, and and change the, uh, uh, the 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 sensitivity to interest rate movements in the portfolio. And that's quite a good way of uh, uh, sort of doing that. And there's a, a guy called James Foster who runs the uh, Artemis Strategic Bond Fund, who 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 runs that sort of strategy you know he's looking at interest rates inflation the quality of the debt he's buying um and uh, um you know mixes it between investment grade high yield and gilts okay okay that's that's great and i think Anne, we're going to move on and actually look at one of the property funds which has been affected by brexit and it's one of our top 100 funds m&g property portfolio managed by fiona rowley the leonora what's been happening with the fund it's halted redemptions has it yeah it's suspended redemptions like a number of property investment trusts um earlier this month um now the reasons m&g has given are similar to what the other funds said. They were, after the vote for Brexit, they received a number of requests for redemptions, a very high number of requests for redemptions. And MNG says they reached a point where we believe we can best protect the interests of a fund shareholder by seeking a temporary suspension. Now, for some funds, uh, it was done... At, I think quite simply because they didn't have the cash. M&G doesn't state that, but what they do point out is that um, they don't want to engage in some sort of fire sale. They don't want to, you know, just sell assets as soon as possible at a low price. And they want to do this, you know, um, I suppose over time. So hopefully they can get um, a better price for these. Okay, and I mean, so is that what she's referring to in your interview when she mentions being surrounded by great white sharks? Yeah, it, it is quite um, a colourful quote. What she what she's saying is, um, after it was publicly announced that the fund had um, suspended redemptions and needed to raise cash to meet these, she got flooded with calls from US private equity companies offering to take the assets off her hands but at a 15 to 20% discount. And she said she could have probably sold the entire portfolio by now, but um, it wouldn't have been very prudent to do so at fire sale prices, certainly not for investors remaining in the fund. Fair enough. So what is she selling then in order to generate cash? Okay, I mean, she didn't go into a lot of specific details, but one end of a portfolio she's targeting is, let's say, the smaller ticket items. She points out that in the last downturn, commercial property assets that kept selling were in the less than £5 million ranges and the 15 to £25 million ranges. And it's where she's getting traction in the portfolio just now. Okay. And is that, does she generally do that then to improve liquidity? Is that something that they've changed in the fund? Well, I don't know if um, she held things like that in the last financial crisis. That's something I don't know. But um, certainly now, the reason she has assets of this size is because they're smaller 
um, and more liquid and easier to sell. In fact, she, um, I think she says that um, you know these small assets you can either sell them individually or you could sell them you know as a portfolio. And they certainly seem to be more popular than some of the larger assets. Okay. And what does she say about the kind of outlook for for her portfolio and how it's being affected by? Brexit. Is she anticipating a, a write down in the value of the portfolio? Well, she didn't say that, but it has already had two write downs actually. In June, the fund's independent value, a night rank, marked it down by 1%. And in, I think it was like around the 1st of July, they marked down the fair, they did a fair value adjustment, which is equivalent to about 4.5% of the fund's net mm. asset value. Okay, and Adrian, what do you think about this fund, and and what do you think about the outlook for commercial property generally? Does does it scare you, or or are there still good areas to invest in? So, I mean, with regard to this fund, I mean, it's been quite well diversified. It's got it had over 150 properties in the portfolio, and it's spread quite widely throughout the UK. Um, and you know, prior prior to this uh, this incident, you know, it had a pretty good portfolio, long lease length and low vacancy rate. So, you know, generally, um, nothing wrong with the fund. Um, it's just been perhaps caught out with having less cash in it than perhaps other others or, or more redemptions. So. So, it's, it's, so I think I don't think it's a particularly specific issue with the fund. It's more what's been going on wider. And th- this has, I think, largely been the, the initial knee-jerk reaction to the referendum vote and the decision to leave. And, you know, it's, it, we, we, saw, we saw it in equity markets. We've seen it in currency markets. Bits of the markets sold off quite quickly. Um, and property was actually no different. It just, it just because of its lack of liquidity, um, it, 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 it hit the headlines and, and, and has had the problems. I think going forward, there has been some opportunities created by this, this sell-off. Uh, we've already seen some, uh, some property funds sort of uh, revalue their portfolios back up as, as, as things have settled down. So I think the initial sort of scare is perhaps over. And, uh, you know, there, there's some fantastic opportunities in property. It's, um, you know, it was fairly valued going into this year, but it looks rather attractive going forward. That's interesting. So you don't think then this exposes just a big flaw with with open-ended property funds? I mean, do they work as fund vehicles? Is this just, you know, par for the course? I, it is if you if you invest in it, then it is par for the course and you've got to you've got to be aware of that. I think there there is the issue with the, the, the structure is is really around everyone rushing to leave the door at the same time. Um, if you are content to sort of remain invested and you're you know you're not a panicked investor and you're you've got a very long term strategy, um, so you know you bought this two or three years ago and it's part of your diversified portfolio, then you shouldn't be looking to rush through the door. And I think that that's the issue for a lot of investors. Um, they can be long term at the point of decision, but they can become short term. Uh, in, a, in a sense of crisis, and, there, and that's what causes the problem. So I think there does need to be a few things to address um, open-ended property funds. And you know, some of the issues are you add more cash into the portfolio, but that that just impacts on performance. You know, investment trusts, are, you know, they they get more volatile. So if you have um, uh, real estate investment trusts, uh, which are the closed-ended versions, they they tend to have bigger swings in the share price. But at least the fund managers aren't having to be forced to sell. The underlying investments, um, mm-hmm. and and those investors who want to stay in or, or even buy, can can take advantage of that volatility. Yeah, well, Leonora, you look at um, closed end 
funds a lot, don't you? What, what's been happening in, in the investment trust sector? Um, well, like Adrian said, um, a lot of volatility. The um, share prices come off and the discounts have widened. They have come back in a bit. I think it'd be fair to say they, you know, they're not um, an ideal way to invest either because during financial crisis, the discounts to NAV and the share prices of the property investment trust absolutely tanked. I mean, some of them at the worst level one discounts to NAV of more than 70%. So although you could theoretically sell your shares in the market, if, you know, if you're fund investment trust so it had absolutely plunged in value compared to what you bought it you probably wouldn't want to sell it you'd sit and wait so in effect you gated into that too I think it's you know with commercial property funds the open-ended versions as well I think as Adrian says you know um, if you're a long-term investor gating you know in over a few months shouldn't be an issue and I think it's fair to say commercial property is a risk asset and you shouldn't be in it if you don't have a long-term investment horizon Okay, so neither perfect, basically. (laughs) So moving on, finally, we are now going to take a look at a way of reducing inheritance tax bills for the assets you pass on through business property relief. And Emma's been looking at this. So Emma, what is business property relief? Basically, it's a statutory relief um, and it's designed to encourage investment in small unquoted companies. And the main benefit it offers is that you're able to get 100% exemption from inheritance tax if you've been holding the shares for at least two years before your death. And um, obviously, these shares need to be in the qualifying business. And that, you know, it will come down to talk about what, you know, businesses qualify in a bit. But um, financial planners have been seeing a huge increase in the number of people interested in these products because there are more and more people who are finding that they're going to be paying inheritance tax. And that's due to the rise in property prices, pushing up um, the value of people's estates, meaning that more people are likely to be caught out by inheritance tax. Okay, so who is it suitable for? Um, well, you, you know, the, the main purpose of, as you said, um, BPR is to reduce inheritance tax and the current threshold for people who um, are going to have to pay inheritance tax is anyone who's got an estate of £325,000 or more. Um, that's for an individual. For a couple, that would be £650,000. So if you've got assets that are higher than that amount, then you know it's something to consider because you could be um, in line for an IHT bill further down the line. So yes, but if you've got assets less than that, it's not really worth considering BPR because the whole point is to reduce inheritance tax. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to get the free, um, it's not going to affect you that at that point. So no point to consider it then. Um, it's also a useful tool for people who, you know, think that they may face an inheritance tax problem and are in poor health or, you know, sort of worried about life expectancy. Because um, unlike other kind of tax relief options um, that are out there, you get the tax relief back after only holding the shares for two years, which means, you know, if you're worried about um, survival over that period of time, it's, it's something to consider. OK, and you said not all of these unquoted companies qualify. What what things do you qualify for relief? Yeah, um, so businesses must be unquoted trading companies to benefit from the from the relief. And, and actually, that includes many traded companies on the alternative investment market, the AIM market. However, as you point out, not all um, companies you know, that fit that bill um, are eligible. And the, and the main reasons why they wouldn't be eligible would be if 
they are primarily dealing with investments um, like stocks and shares or land and buildings. So really, if you're trying to think about um, whether or not business is eligible for BPR, um, focus on businesses that effectively uh, you know, produce producing something or providing a service, anything that's just to do with kind of financial um, share dealing effectively um, is usually exempt. Okay, so and you can check, can you? Well, there's a bit of a problem with that actually because there's not a definitive list of companies that are out there, say on the A market or um, you know the, the the range of quote unquoted trading companies that are out there. So it is a bit of a area that you will need to sort of look at the government's rules on what qualifies and make your own assessment if you're going to do this as an individual investor. You can also sort of um, outsource it effectively to to managers and providers that are out there okay. and they can do that for you. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a tricky area and um, there's different ways of getting around that. Okay, well I guess that that is maybe one downside, but are there other downsides to holding these kind of assets or trying to use this? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, they've, as I said, got good benefits and flexibility around them, but there are downsides with everything. So um, the main issue is that it is a risky area because you are investing in unquoted trading companies and um, companies trading on AIM, and these tend to be much more volatile um, than, than other assets. So, you know, you've got to be aware that there's an increased risk of default, the company going bust and you losing all the... Um, the money you've invested, in which case inheritance tax is not really such a problem. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then there's obviously the, the issue of volatility, ups and downs in the market, and a bit like, you know, the discussion about property funds, um, liquidity is another big issue in this area. So not being able to sell your holding when you want to, or having to sell into, you know, for much less a uh, lower price than, than you can just because liquidity is so li- troublesome. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned there you can outsource buying the assets. What what are the different ways of buying and holding them? Yeah, so as I said, you can do it yourself. Of all the the people we spoke to, the experts said that it is much harder to do that than say if you're going to be choosing a unit trust or you know, it's it's a much harder area to do research in. So it, you would have to be very, you know, very confident of your abilities and you know, very clear about the rules and what qualifies. So, you know, that is an option. If you don't have the time or don't have the inclination, you can buy ready-made AIM portfolios from a number of providers that are out there. And the other option is that there are also providers of sort of vehicles that invest in trading and unquoted companies. So you've got the AIM side of things and you've got the companies that are sort of, you know, not on AIM and you can also invest in that. And there's providers of both types of products around. And yeah, I'm going to be looking at the range of products that are out there next week. So um, in next week's edition, so if you want to know more, make sure you take a look at the magazine next week. Great. All right. Thanks for that. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week. So it just remains for me to thank Emma, Leonora and Adrian. To read more about bond funds, property funds and BPR, take a look at this week's magazine. And otherwise, have a good weekend. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.